This is my verse for you for this morning. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who made this incredible beach, who made these waves and the ocean and the sand on the seashore. What a God we serve, hey? Good morning. I know I'm wearing a very bold outfit this morning. Um, I had to compete with the, the sea in that view, so I thought, go big, Anna. Um, good morning. Um, before I get going, I actually just want to invite Clive up. So, Clive, if you want to give, give him a big round of applause. Thanks. John, I'm not that tall. <laughs> um, well, uh, last night, Clive just came up to me um, because God had spoken something to you um, in the, the worship. Could you just share what that was? Yeah, it was during the worship, I really started to feel a strong presence of God, um, like just flowing from me, almost as if, as if I could have levitated off of the floor. And what I felt, um, what I felt God, um, God was speaking to me was that I can come as far towards him as I want, or, but if I don't, you know, he loves me as much, but... And, and do you remember what you said to me right afterwards? About the grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's really about, I really felt the presence of God's grace, and that's something I've felt at certain times in my life, and, and that is, is all God's grace, you know, and, um, and that is a thing that, what really cause overcoming in my life is God's grace. Mm. Not through my trying to do things by rules, but walking towards him and the grace picking hold of me and then actually I'm falling in love with Jesus, so I don't want to be doing this stuff anymore. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Like, if you remember nothing more from this morning, just remember that. Why don't we pray um, and just welcome the presence of Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, we thank you for that picture, the invitation that we can come as close to you as we want. Thank you for that grace, Jesus. Thank you that even if we choose not to, you still love us. That doesn't change anything. But as we said last night, God, we dare to, to come closer and closer to you this weekend. As we were singing about Holy Spirit, would you come and reveal Jesus to us and pour out your power and grace, pour out your power and love upon us this morning. And that's what I feel like he wants to do this morning. As we look at him, he wants to pour out his power and love. And Father, we just say that we are open to receive him. All that you have for us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, so we finished last night with that, that invitation to, to come and gaze upon the God who gazes upon us. And the thing about being Christians is we don't um, believe in like a nameless, faceless God. God isn't just some sort of abstract being. He is a person and he has a name and his name is Jesus. And that's significant because basically what that means for us is we don't get to make God in our own image. We don't get to decide who God is. God is who he is, which is why the Bible is so important because we've got to come with humility to that book and say, God, would you come and show me who you are? Would you come and surprise me with your character, your nature? And I don't know if you've ever um, had that experience when someone thinks that they know you and they say something about you and they get it entirely wrong. I had that the other day. Um, I've got a dog. Um, he's going to come up on the screen uh, in just a few moments. 
Um, and I mean, he's actually sat in my car. I say he's the love of my life, but he's actually sat in the boot of my car. Um, <laughs> yeah, dog cruelty. Um, someone's going to go check on his fan. Um, basically, this is Kelly. Oh, isn't he cute? Steph Rayner took that photo if you want any like doggy portraits. Um, then there's another one um, just coming straight up after. Yep, that's he's a little bit older. Yeah. <laughs> and then a final one. He's cute, isn't he? Anyway, um, I love my dog, and I took him for um, a, a groom. And uh, they, they gave me the option of going for the puppy spa package, and I thought, yes, I will upgrade, because there was a facial involved. Anyway, I said, this I said to this to someone the other day, and she said, she said back to me, she said, Anna, do you know what? Um, she said, I reckon you judge people for the things that you would do. If someone else did that, you'd be really judgmental of them. I was like, uh, no, I wouldn't. I'd be like, what flavor was it? They're like, oh, a raspberry one, and do they have an adult version of it? Um, but in that conversation, I was like, realized, and I felt really sad. I was like, this person doesn't know me. She doesn't know who I am. If she, that's what she thinks about me, um, and I f it made me feel a little bit sad. But the thing is, that is what we do to God all the time. We project upon him our opinions, our fears, our preferences, and say things about him and think things about him which actually just aren't true which is why we need to come, as I said, with humility to the Bible, to ha allow God to surprise us with who he is, to allow him to renew our minds, to change our thinking. And that's the thing, like the, the dynamic thing about a relationship is discovering the other person. Then, then as that is what discipleship is really about. It's about discovering who Jesus is, becoming obsessed with the person of Jesus, wanting to know him more, spending time with him, being so obsessed with him that actually you just want to become like him because he's so captivated you. There is nothing and no one more compelling than Jesus. There is no one who is more wholly good, more supremely wonderful and more faithful than Jesus. There is no one like him. He is incomparable. And you hear in the, the book of Philippians, Paul's absolute devotion to Jesus. He is devoted to Jesus. It's devotion to Jesus that has led him to that prison cell, to sit in appalling conditions, but refuse to let the chains restrict his praise. It's his devotion to Jesus that says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not a theory for him. As he sits there in cramped conditions, in an inhumane cell, even that place, even in that place, he's just like, my whole life is all about you, Jesus. Utterly devoted to Jesus. And if you look in um, chapter two, which is what the, we're gonna be looking at this morning, Paul writes this hymn of praise. It might be um, one of the first songs of, of praise um, that has ever, was ever written in the early church. It might be that it was one of the songs that they were, actually Paul didn't write it, but he, they were, would have been familiar with it. Um, but it's basically this, this moment where, where Paul pours out his utter devotion to Jesus as he describes who this person is. So, and if you want to know who this God who gazes upon you is, this is a really good place to go and learn about the person of Jesus. So I'm going to invite David to come up and do our reading. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you very much. Okay, the reading this morning is Philippians 2, uh, starting at verse 5 through to 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges 
he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in the obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. So that is the God who gazes upon you this weekend. The God who basically said, I, I'm not going to use equality with God to be used for my own advantage, for my own vain conceit. Equality with God was not something that Jesus desired. It was something he possessed. He was God. He was fully divine. That's the first thing we need to know about. He was fully God, fully divine. His divinity was something he always had, and therefore he felt no need to seize or grasp at power. The power what was always his. And I wrote down the, like, the direct translation from the Greek of the Philippians verse 2 to 6. And um, it kind of sounds, it should come up on the screen. It kind of sounds a little bit like Yoda's speaking. Um, but I thought it was quite helpful. It says, who in the form of God existing, not something to be grasped, considered to be equal with God, but himself emptied. It does sound a little bit like Yoda. But I, what I loved about it was this sense of like, there's no, uh, there's like the agency of Jesus, that Jesus was absolutely choosing his actions. So while he was God, he is choosing to empty himself. He is choosing not to grasp. It says himself emptied. Jesus made the choice himself to have no reputation. Jesus never stopped being God, but he embraced a vocation of humiliation and performed the duties of a slave. And Jesus, in doing so, demonstrates the truest form of the, the, the truest character of God. It's a God of outlandish humility. And so when we look at Jesus, because he is fully divine, we can see the character and the nature of God. This is a God who doesn't use power to oppress like the Romans were in Philippi. This is a God who doesn't use power to gain things in order for himself. This is the God who pours himself out generously. He doesn't use his power to oppress like that woman was oppressed. He uses his power to set people free. He has all the supreme power. He has all of that, and he uses it to pour himself out. Not to insert himself over us, not to oppress us, but to come and set us free. And Jesus basically does what human beings have never been able to do. If you go back and look at the origin story, we were looking at origin stories last night. If you go and look at the origin story of humanity, you go to the book of Genesis, and you read a poem of basically how human beings came into existence. God looked over them, he said, you are made in my image and likeness. He looked at humanity and said, you are made in my image and likeness. But a few chapters on, you then read that these, these human beings are basically told, why don't you come and eat this fruit? Oh, God doesn't want you to eat that because then you're gonna become like God. It is the tragedy of that story in Genesis, is that the human beings were grasping for something that they already had. The offer was a temptation of come and be like God, but he had already made them in his image and likeness. What they were choosing to say, I wanna have a God-likeness that is away from you, Jesus. I want separation from you. I choose to be like God, but not in the way that you are like God. I choose it for myself. And it is a hideous tragedy, but that is not what Jesus does. 
that is absolutely not what Jesus does. Jesus comes and does what we cannot do because that is the story. It's maybe our origin story, but it's what we always choose to do. It's like we are made in the image of lightless. We are covered in glory and honor, and yet we choose to let it go because we'd actually rather have life centered around us. We'd actually rather define our own life. We'd rather define our own existence and our own world. We'd rather be the center of the story. Jesus, I don't want you to be the center of the story. I choose to define myself how I want to be. And what Jesus does is he says, oh, I, I'm actually, I am God. I am fully God and I choose to pour myself out. I choose not to snatch. I choose not to grasp at power, but I choose to give it away. I choose to pour myself out. The divine weakness, it says, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to death by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's the divine weakness, death at the hands of his creatures. It's a divine scandal. But to fully understand what, quite what that passage means, we need to return to our honor and shame thing. So you imagine this letter is being read in the house of Lydia, who we met last night in Philippi. And remember, this is like a little mini Rome. It, the sense of self-importance would have been massive in that place. It would have pervaded the city. The cultural currency was honor. And the very best thing that you could do was have honor attached to your name. The very worst thing you could do is have shame attached to your name. And the celebrated leaders of the time would have been like Alexander the Great. And in true Roman fashion, Alexander the Great basically crossed and he subjugated through power and brutality. But he was held up as a divine figure. So here is someone who makes their way, who grafts at power through crushing, through stepping on other people. And what the culture says is, oh gosh, he's like a demigod. He is godlike. That is what God is like. Then you've got the figure of um, Emperor Augustus, who had uh, turned the Republic of Rome into an empire. He had expanded Rome. And again, he was seen as a demigod. And these are the type of people that the um, Philipp Philippians celebrated. If you look in a culture, what um, a culture celebrates and what it punishes is, is what you, tells you so much about what that culture is like. Um, if you look at what, who kids want to emulate, that tells you something of what the, um, the culture is like. And my nephew and niece are 10 and 7 now, and I catch them on their tablets basically making YouTube videos in the most, like, the most mundane things in the world. And there was a time, a very small window, when I was the coolest auntie that they'd ever had. Because um, at my last talk at KXC, my parents um, decided to watch it, so they, they got it up on YouTube on their, their tablet, and the kids were watching it, and apparently they were captivated. My parents were like, they didn't take their eyes off the screen, and I was like, wow. I was like, they've listened to like, the, me preaching the gospel. They've heard something of Jesus. So I went to my niece and I said, um, I, I heard you watched um, my talk. And they were, she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Auntie Anna, I can't believe you've got your own YouTube channel. You're so cool. I was like, oh, you see, you didn't really listen. She's, she was just captivated by the fact that I had my own YouTube channel. But in Philippians, it was celebrated, it was honor. It was a culture of self-obsession. And that is the culture that we have. We are totally and utterly self-obsessed. We are totally and utterly narcissistic, wanting to be the center of the story. And we might be quite shocked by the political leaders that we have coming out at the moment, and the ones they seem to be producing. However, it shouldn't be a surprise, because that's what our culture celebrates, narcissism. 
And the thing is, the problem isn't out there. We can't just look at the political leaders and say, oh, isn't that an issue? The problem is in here as well. It exists in every single one of us. So let's return to Philippi. Well, we know that their culture is a culture of honor. They had the celebrated men like Alexander the Great making that journey from being man to divine. They saw him as a demigod. He had accumulated power, wealth, status, and honor to the point that he was godlike. And they had something called the cursus honorum. Um, I don't know if I said that right, but basically it means the course of honor. And this would have been like the story of someone's tracking up to divine godlike status, the steps that you've taken, your narrative basically of what you've done to gain honor upon honor upon honor upon honor till you get to the top of the tree and then you rule over everyone else. That was their model of leadership. That was their model of kingship. And let's read then that, this Philippians passage in the context of that. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Unlike the Philippian heroes, he does not come to exploit. The Greek word um, for used is robbery or exploitation, exploiting things at the expense of others. So do you see why Paul was devoted to this man, Jesus? Do you see why he was so captivated by Jesus? It's because he was unlike anything else in the culture. Unlike anything else. And Paul is praising this God while he's in chains because this is the man who set him free. Jesus poured himself out. Imagine a glass being poured out. That's the Jesus-like model. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, even death on a cross. Like to die on a cross was the most shameful thing. It was the bottom of the bottom. No Roman citizen would, would even be crucified because it was like, it was too shameful for a Roman to be crucified. So if you're gonna be punished, you're gonna be punished in a different way. It was the lowest of the low. So in an honor and shame culture, Jesus has basically hit rock bottom. That is rock bottom. So the course of honor for Jesus is a downward trajectory. It is going in the complete opposite direction of the culture. He is God and he makes himself nothing. It's a downward journey. But Jesus is not becoming less divine. He's saying this is what divinity looks like. The God who gazes upon you is this God. The God who chooses the downward journey. And N.T. Wright says it perfectly, so I'm not going to try and copy it, I'll just read it. The decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience. Obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross. This decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. His progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. The perfect self-expression of the true God, the visible image of the invisible God. What is God like? What is his name? What is his character? This is what God is like. But it's interesting, the passage doesn't end in shame. It doesn't end at that end point. It ends in exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and under, on, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ruler, 
servant, slave, exalted. The way up is via the way down. Paul is not saying that our exaltation or honor is bad, but he's redefining the route to it. And to underline that actually Jesus is divine, um, he, we have one of Paul's, you know, I talked about whoops-a-daisy moments. The Hugh Grant can't help but be British. Paul can't help but be Jewish. And this is one of his whoops-a-daisy moments when he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on, on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He basically rips it out of Isaiah 45, where it says, for I am God, there is no other. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul is saying Jesus is the God that Isaiah is talking about. And it's Jesus is the God that we read who gets down in the, the muck with people, who gets down and serves people, who takes the very lowest position of a servant. He's the one who touched lepers. He's the one who hung out with people that no one else would hang out with. That is what God is like, which is great news for you and me because it doesn't matter who you are, what your story is, God wants to hang out with you. He is the Lord, there is no other. He is the divine one, and he's the one who deserves that every knee should bow to him. Not because he's imposed his power on anyone, but because he's poured it out. The phrase, Jesus is Lord, is actually more of an explosive statement than we can possibly imagine. Paul writes this, this phrase, Jesus is Lord in a Roman prison. Rome was the center of power of the Roman Empire. And he's surrounded by Roman guards. And he writes this phrase, Jesus is Lord, which is hugely explosive because the phrase of the empire was Caesar is Lord. Now, if Jesus is Lord, that means that Caesar is not Lord. It was basically treason to say that. The phrase of the time was that Nero is Lord. So in the middle of the hub of this Roman Empire, Paul writes this most extraordinary statement. And it would have been terrifying if Epaphroditus knew what was in that statement. He's then got to walk a thousand miles across the Roman Empire. And he would have been like terrified, I imagine, because I, I hope no one stops to read what this letter actually says, because it's treason. Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not. And Paul is basically inciting a revolution in Philippians. He's saying, abandon the ways of the empire with their violent oppression. Do not submit to the shame that they are heaping upon you. Do not follow their vain attempts of honor. Take on the revolution of Jesus, where the only route to exaltation is a choice of serving. The only way of honor is actually to take the position of a servant. They can put you in the cell, but they cannot take your freedom. They cannot take your joy. They cannot rob you of your identity. They have no authority to tell you who you are because only Jesus has the authority to tell you who you are. There is only one person it's worth bowing before. His name is Jesus and he is Lord. He's the God of heaven above and he has come down, embodied himself as a servant, as a human being to reveal his love, to show you what love truly looks like. And Paul is utterly devoted to him. Paul is utterly devoted to Jesus. And when I read these words, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want that same devotion to Jesus. I want that same all in for Jesus because there is no one else who's worth giving my life for. There is no one else who's worth loving in the way that Jesus is worth loving. Come and bow before him. The one who gazes upon you this morning is the self-giving God. Let him love you this morning. 
Let him pour himself out on you this morning. His invitation, as Clive said, is come as close as you want. I'm not going to force my oppression on you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to control you. I'm inviting you in. I want to set you free. Let him pour himself out on you. Let him pour out his power and his love because this is the God who comes to set us free. For the tired and weary souls in the room, he wants to come and refresh you. For those who just don't think you're lovable, he wants to come and refresh you. For those where your love has grown cold for him, he wants to say, come, come to me. Just spend some time with me and I promise you that will change because I'm so compelling. He's so confident in how compelling he is. Just come and be with him. In his grace, in his mercy, he wants to meet with you. Whatever baggage you're bringing in this weekend, he wants to meet with you. And that's what we w I wanna do this morning for, um, before we break for coffee, is I just want us to spend some time saying, God, come and pour your love on me again. I need to be drenched in your love. I need to know the God who pours himself out upon me. I need to taste your mercy again. I need to taste your grace again. So why don't we stand um, and let's just do that. And it might just help because it's quite warm in here. Well, at least I'm warm. It's just to shake it off a little bit, just to kind of move your, move your legs. Do whatever you need to do um, in order to, to basically engage right now. Maybe take a swig of water. Have a stretch. Jesus, we invite you to pour yourself out on us. Why don't we just wait, just in, in the silence, no agenda. Come, Holy Spirit. just feel like there's some people in here is you find yourself on the edges and what Jesus would want to say to you is you belong in the center so for those who just feel like almost maybe it's even you've drifted from community you've drifted from being at the the fiery center Jesus is saying you belong in the center you belong at the core and this morning it's an invitation to come back